All right, well, let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah. I want you to put a marker there so that you can get back to it. If you're not quite sure where the book of Zephaniah is, you're in good company, so let me give you a little assistance. The last 12 books of the Old Testament are referred to as the Minor Prophets, as we have, as we have said, not because um, of where they're located in the canon of Scripture, not because they're in any way less important than their major counterparts like Ezekiel and Daniel and Isaiah and Jeremiah, referred to as the major prophets, but simply because uh, of the brevity of these, these letters, these these books of the Bible, these 12 books of the Bible, they are minor in comparison to their major counterparts. So if you go to the end of the Old Testament and you back up four books, you're going to find this little three-chapter book that, that many Bible scholars have said is the least read and the least studied book in the entire Bible. Well, you've often heard me say, uh, as a pastor who preaches and teaches every week, I I speak a lot of words, and that is so uh, very true. But if you know me at all, even when I'm not preaching or teaching, you know that I love to talk with others. It's genuine. It's sort of a part of my DNA. I truly love and care about people, and I love to talk to people. If Kathy and I are on vacation, she knows that more than likely I'm going to strike up a conversation with people that we encounter on our trip that we most likely will never, ever see again. Uh, I'll strike up a conversation with folks at breakfast or if we're standing in line to check out at the store, or I may strike up a conversation at the gas station with the person that's pumping gas beside me. My mom once jokingly said that I came out of the womb talking. And so all that to say, it is very rare for me to be at a loss for words. But I actually found myself dumbfounded this past week as I, as I tried to begin to prepare for today's message. I think maybe for the first time in my life, I had no words. I, I read the book of Zephaniah through several times. I even read what others wrote about this book. But for much longer than I'd like to admit, I just stared at my computer Folks, I had nothing. I had no idea what to say about this book that I already hadn't shared many, many times as we've gone through all of these other minor prophets. So I thought, well, some of you are going to be happy about that. This could be the shortest sermon in the history of Grace Life Church. So I asked the Lord for some help. Novel idea, but I was sitting at my computer and getting absolutely nothing accomplished, had nowhere to begin, had no idea where to end. And I asked the Lord, I said, Lord, and as if he didn't already know this, I said, Lord, I need to preach a 45 to 50 minute sermon from this book, and I got nothing. I have got absolutely nothing. And then During my time of being verbally paralyzed with no words in sight, it hit me. The the reason why I couldn't figure out how to make this book new and refreshing is because there's nothing new and refreshing about it. It's the same old message that the people of Israel and the people of Judah had so consistently ignored, and the message is to repent of your sin 
and be restored back to God. It's the same message contained in each of the minor prophets, and it's the same message that preachers preach today. The only hope that sinful people have is to see their sin as God sees their sin and repent of it. And then I thought, you know, how sad. How sad it is that God, through the prophets, the faithful prophets, had to be so repetitive with the people of Israel and the, and the people of Judah because they just wanted to do things that gratified their flesh. They, they seemed to love their sin more than they love God. And so we come to this little book of Zephaniah today, and that's the overall message of what he's going to try to share with us today, to repent or the judgment of God is at hand. And so as we look at this today, we might have the tendency to say the same thing that I said. Here we go again. What in the world is wrong with these people? They just keep sinning and sinning as though uh, they uh, don't care and they get farther and they get farther away from God. And so you ask the question, why in the world would they keep doing this? So I thought today we'd begin by analyzing the situation and ask the question, why do people sin so much? And I think the basic answer to our question, we know, right, Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, Adam, when he sinned as our federal head in the Garden of Eden, as man's representative on the earth, when Adam sinned, then the sin nature was passed down to all of his posterity. And so when Adam sinned, we sinned. We became sinners by nature because of Adam's sin. And so we know that that's at the heart of things. We sin because we are sinners. But might I add that people sin because they like it. We should know this because there is still a part of us that likes to sin. Even as those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, we still have to be on our toes as it relates to sin. Why? Because sin is pleasurable, right? We would be very naive to think that there isn't pleasure in sin. Sometimes temporary pleasure for sure, but pleasurable nonetheless, why else would people sin? Well, some might say, well, the devil made me do it. I grew up on the north end of Springfield, Illinois, the capital city of Illinois, and um, people like to put bumper stickers on their cars. And there were bumper stickers all over the place on cars all over the north end of Springfield. The devil made me do it. Probably not. Probably not. We did it. We seek to gratify our flesh. And so when we ask the question, why do we sin? Well, we we sin because rather than desiring to please God, we want to please our flesh. If sin wasn't so enticing, we wouldn't be so entrenched into it. And last week we talked about the sins of commission, the sins of omission. So we we commit sin, we do the very things that we don't want to do, and then we also don't do the things that we know we should do. 
And so this is a problem that we all have. We all have a sin problem. The people of Israel, the people of Judah, the neighboring nations that were around them, they had a sin problem. People don't like to talk about sin much anymore. In fact, churches call sin now mistakes, things that happen. But this is a biblical word In the New Testament, the Greek word for sin is harmartia, which gives us the doctrine of harmartiology, the doctrine of sin, and it literally means to miss the mark of God's righteousness. And so when we sin, we violate the very law of God, and we miss God's mark of righteousness. And so we look back and we see all of these minor prophets and all of their instruction to these nations and to Israel and to Judah, and we go, don't they get it? I mean, this has been so repetitive. Repent of your sin. Take your sin seriously. And so we look at it and we go, here we go again. It's the same message. And then we begin to ask the question, why do you think that God and his word kept putting the same thing in over and over again? Because we need to hear the same thing over and over and over again. And so why do people sin? Well, they sin because they like it. It's pleasurable. James 1 Verses 14 and 15 says this, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it has run its course, brings forth death. Now I ask you to put a marker in Zephaniah because we're going to move around a lot today. Uh, Generally, I like to kind of keep you anchored, but we're going to move around a little bit today. So go with me to the New Testament. Romans chapter 6. So keep your marker in Zephaniah and go with me to Romans chapter 6. And so Paul uses himself as an example often in Scripture, and he he tells us that he struggles with sin as well. Not a super-Christian, used by God as an apostle, the greatest missionary the church has ever seen, but he struggled with the same things that we struggle with. So he's the author of this letter that was written to the church at Corinth, beginning in Romans chapter 6 and verse 1, he begins to talk about the sin problem. So look at verse 1, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So I want you to ask yourself the same questions that he's asking here as we go through. So how shall we, who died to sin, still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ and have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin." 
Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And then verse 14, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but you are under grace. So I'm not going to get into the deep theological part of all this, but let me just say here as simply as I can, when we trusted in Jesus Christ and he saved us by his grace through faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, something happened. And I will say that if you're swimming in sin, constantly swimming in sin, and you're constantly engaged in sin, and sin is your master, then you can't be a Christian according to Scripture. If sin is your master, you have not died to sin and exchanged the mastery from our own fleshly desires, self, to the mastery of Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk more about this as we move along, but I think we just take for granted that we're sinners and we sin, and so we think it's normal. Well, everyone sins. Yes, everyone sins. Theologically, we were saved from our sin. Not just the penalty of our sin, but the power of sin in our lives. If you sin and you constantly are sinning and you're not even thinking about it as it is sin, then there's a problem because we have died to sin. We are alive to God. So what do we do with all this? Sin is such a part of our life, yes. It was a part of the Apostle Paul's life, yes. (laughs) And so it's not to say that we're going to be perfect in this life, absolutely not. We will never be sinless in this life. Scripture is clear about that. To him who says that he has no sin, he's a liar, the truth's not in him. And so we will struggle with sin, but as we have been saved from our sin, not just the penalty, but the power of it, we will sin less. We will not be sinless, but we will sin less because as, we, as the Holy Spirit of God works in us, he continues to change us. The mastery part of it has been shifted. It's been transferred. We no longer are slaves to sin. We are now slaves to Christ. So, So go with me to Hebrews 11, and I I think this is going to help us to simplify this in a big way. And it's very, very obvious. 
Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning with verse 24. So, here's the deal. It's not that we're saved and everything changes so that we never struggle with sin. That's not what Scripture says, okay? But now we have the tools to deal with sin, whereas before we didn't. And so I love the example of Moses. So look at this in verse 24 of chapter 11. By faith, which we sang today, by faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, and the key word in the text here is choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the temporary pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. The key to this is that, that, that Moses chose rather to deal with the ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the temporary pleasures of sin. If we're not thinking about sin and we're just involved in it day after day, all through our day, all through our week, all through our month, and we're not thinking about it, we're not battling it, we're not choosing to set it aside, then there's a problem. There's a real strong problem. At the end of this, he says, he he speaks about that he was looking to the reward. We live in the temporal, most of us. We live in the temporal. We're time-oriented. We live where we're at. We, 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 We see what needs to happen today. We see what needs to happen tomorrow. We put things on our calendar. We're looking at all these different kinds of things. We have to do this. We have to do that. Moses was concerned about the reward. Do we even think about the fact that one day we will stand before God and give an account for our life? And so the reward that he's speaking about here is the reward from God for being faithful to him. You see, as we're working against all of the forces of our flesh and the desire for our flesh to sin, we must choose not to sin. We don't have to sin anymore because we possess the Spirit of God. Our sins have been forgiven. And as I've said twice already, that not only are we saved from the penalty of sin, but we are now saved from the power of sin. We don't have to sin anymore. And yet there's a struggle. And yet we do still continue to sin. But are we in the battle against sin? Are we recognizing it? Romans 14 and verse 12 says, so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. And so as we consider the the book of Zephaniah today, Zephaniah is sort of the forgotten prophet, at least in the modern day church. Um, because of the redundancy of his message, his relative obscurity, not to mention that I don't think I've ever heard a sermon ever preached on the book of Zephaniah. I've been in the church my whole life, almost 60 
years, and I don't believe I've ever heard anyone preach a message from the book of Zephaniah. He's sort of like the forgotten prophet. But the message of this book is profound, and it is one of hope and and restoration for those who repent of their sin. So we see here in verse 1 that it is affirmed that Zephaniah is the author of this book. But it's interesting how Zephaniah introduces himself. Look at verse 1 of Zephaniah 1. It says, The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. So here we find that Zephaniah, whose name means the Lord hides or, or hidden by the Lord, and this is really a reminder that God always has a remnant. It doesn't matter how bad it gets, God always has a remnant. So in a sense, even in all of the sin and the turmoil that he was living in in the day, it's an idea that, that God has hidden within all of the mess, his people. There's always, always a remnant. And so this is what Zephaniah's name means. It means the Lord hides or hidden by the Lord. But notice here that he traces his lineage all the way back to his great-great-grandfather, King Hezekiah. So why does he stop with Hezekiah? Well, most likely because he wanted to highlight that he was a descendant of one of Judah's good kings. And if you drop down to verse 4, his reference to this place indicates that he prophesied in Jerusalem, which was in the southern kingdom. Throughout the the book here, there are many references to temple worship and other things related to the temple, which was in Jerusalem. So it shows a strong familiarity with Israel's religious culture. So it appears that Zephaniah was well-connected in the kingdom of Judah. His lineage alone would help to give him an audience with both the religious elite and the political elite. So it says here that Zephaniah served as a prophet during the reign of Josiah, king of Judah, which is the southern kingdom. And Josiah reigned for 31 years between 640 and 609 BC. Now you may know that the kings are chronicled in the Old Testament. And so we learn more about Josiah. And so I think this is a part of the puzzle that we need to put together. So go with me back to 2 Chronicles chapter 34. So 2 Chronicles chapter 34, and we learn about this, this king, Josiah. 2 Chronicles chapter 34, beginning with verse 1. So Josiah is the king as Zephaniah writes this letter, but we learn about King Josiah here in 2 Chronicles chapter 34. Now, the whole chapter is about him. So I'm only going to look at the first seven verses here, and then you could read further if you'd like. It's, it's pretty fascinating. But notice here in verse 1 of 2 Chronicles 34, Josiah was eight years old when he became king. How many of you have an eight-year-old? Or someone king at eight? 
He became king when he was eight years old, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. Notice here, he did right in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in the ways of his father David, and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, so in other words, when he was 16, while he was still a youth, he began to seek the God of his father David, and then in the twelfth year, he began, which he would have been 20, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the ashram, the carved images, and the molten images. They tore down the altars of the Baals in his presence, and the incense altars that were high above them he chopped down. Also the ashram, the carved images, and the molten images he broke in pieces, and he ground a powder and scattered it on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. Wow. Then he burned the bones of the priests on their altars and purged Judah and Jerusalem. In the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, even as far as Naphtali, in their surrounding ruins, he also tore down the altars and he beat the ashram and the carved images into powder and chopped down all the incense altars throughout the land of Israel. And then he returned to Jerusalem." hey, we have a king that actually wants to follow after the things of God. Now, we know the northern kingdom had zero kings that desired to walk with God. The southern kingdom had some kings, but just Josiah was probably the, the one that we look at and say, here's a guy that was just like his great-great-grandfather, Hezekiah, a man who desired to walk after God. And so if we do the math, it would have been somewhere around 628 BC when all of these idols were torn down and all of the description of what we just read would have taken place. And so as we go back to Zephaniah and then we begin to move our way through the book, we're going to find that it essentially breaks down into two distinct parts. Two distinct parts. First, in chapter 1 and verse 2, all the way to chapter 3 and verse 8, we find that God's judgment is seen. God's judgment is seen. And as we've seen throughout our study of the minor prophets, unrepentant sin leads to judgment, right? So God is faithful, He's loving, He's gracious, He's long-suffering, but He's also just. And as we saw last week in our study of Amos, he's no respecter of persons. He's no respecter of nations. In fact, that's how Zephaniah begins here in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. He makes a blanket statement concerning God's judgment as it relates to the entire earth. Look at verse 2, chapter 1. I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will remove man and beast. I will remove the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. And I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. And so this is where it kind of gets a little bit tricky. Okay, so Zephaniah mentions the day of the Lord more than any other Old Testament book. The words day of the Lord are not mentioned here in verses 2 and 3, but that's what 
Zephaniah is referring to. He's referring to the the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a biblical phrase that refers to God's judgment on sin. And it's used throughout the Bible, and it can refer to the near judgment of God, the impending judgment of God, or it can refer to the far and final day of the Lord, which happens at the end of the age when the Lord finally judges sin once and for all. And so the the day of the Lord can be near or it can be far. So verses 2 and 3 here are referring to the far judgment of God at the end of the age. And Rick read about this for us today in 2 Peter. The end of the age when the heavens and the earth will be burned up. But the wording here is very eerie, isn't it? It it sounds a lot like what happened at the flood, if you were following along when I read verses 2 and 3. But what Zephaniah is sharing here is that one day in the future, God is going to rain down his judgment on the entire earth, and he's going to eradicate sin altogether. Look at verse 18 of chapter 1. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath, and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all of the inhabitants on the earth. So, it gets a little tricky. Verses 2 and 3 and verse 18 are speaking of this cataclysmic future day of the Lord, uh, the far day of the Lord, okay? When everything is going to be consumed and God will create a new heaven and a new earth. So I want to take you, the last time, I want to take you to the book of Revelation and show you this. So if you would, turn to the book of Revelation, And you know that the book of Revelation is uh, the Apostle John's God-given glimpse into the future. And so one day, yet future, during the far day of the Lord, at the end of the millennial kingdom, God will rain down his final judgment, and then he will bring about the new heavens And the new earth, which will be the eternal dwelling place of those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So, Revelation chapter 20, if you're there. And by the way, and we'll see this, all of those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life will be thrown into the lake of fire for eternity. (laughs) This is no joke. This is no joke. We're talking about eternity here. So look at verse 7 of Revelation chapter 20. All right. I'll fill in the blanks in a moment. When the thousand years are completed, that's the millennial kingdom, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. So during the millennial kingdom, during that thousand-year reign of Christ, Satan is going to be bound, okay? So who populates the millennial kingdom? 
get this question all the time. Uh, who populates the kingdom? Well, during the seven-year tribulation period, as I understand it, there will be people who will come to faith in Christ during that time. So, the next thing on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church, the snatching away of the saints of God. God will meet us in the air, and we will go, and we will forever be with him in glory. Okay? And so, the next thing that we are looking forward to is the church being taken away. That will usher in what Scripture seems to indicate as a, a, a period of tribulation, the first three and a half years referred to as the tribulation. The last three and a half years referred to as the great tribulation. So this seven-year period of time. At the end of that seven-year period of time, Jesus will come back. He'll whip all the people that are coming against Israel. And then he'll set up his millennial kingdom uh, in Jerusalem, sitting on the throne of David for a thousand years. And so now here we say we've jumped all the way a thousand years when the thousand years are completed. So the thousand years are over. The saints of God come down with Christ to reign with him during the millennial kingdom. Okay? So who, who are the ones that go into the millennial kingdom? The ones who were saved during the tribulation period. And there will be children born during the tribulation period. And there will be born sinners. And so there will be sin from sinners in the millennial kingdom. And, God, and Jesus Christ will be ruling. We will be there to rule with him. So this is at the end of that. Okay, this is at the end of the thousand years. When that is completed, Satan will be released from his prison. And part of the thing that they're trying to show in the millennial kingdom is we don't need Satan for sin to be perpetuated. The, the devil made me do it. Probably not. The devil's going to be bound during the thousand years, and there's still going to be sin in the millennial kingdom. So he's released after a thousand years, and he will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war this is where we're going to get to. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire, here we go, fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also so the beast and the false prophet will come into prominence during the seven-year tribulation period to deceive the nations. They're going in the lake of fire. Satan's going in the lake of fire. And then, as Rick read earlier, the whole earth's going into the lake of fire. And there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. Chapter 21 by the way, let me, let me read verse 11 here in Revelation 20 uh, in following. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from, those, uh, pres from, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, 
And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And here we go. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. So the great white throne judgment is where all the unbelievers will stand before Jesus. And we know that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Christians will stand before Christ at what's called the the judgment seat of Christ, or the bema seat, the Greek word bema. And so we will stand there, and we'll give an account for how we've lived, but we will give an account to him as our Lord. We are eternally secured in Jesus Christ. And so as I said earlier, he saved us from the penalty of our sin forever and ever and ever. And so we will stand before Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ. Well, when's that going to happen? Most likely... From what I can understand, it'll be during that seven-year tribulation period when the saints of God have come with Jesus to go back to the glories of heaven. Marriage supper of the Lamb, the Bema seat. But then, at the end of the thousand-year period of time, all of the unbelievers will be judged, and they'll be thrown in the lake of fire. This is called the great white throne judgment. So look at chapter 21 and verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And then verse 8. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and the murderers and the immoral persons and the sorcerers and the idolaters and all the liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the, the second death. So we don't have time to go through all of this today, but if you want to study this further, chapter 21, verse 1, all the way to chapter 22 and verse 6 is the description of the new heavens and the new earth. So what does this have to do with Zephaniah? So let's go back there and I'll explain. So as we go back to the book of Zephaniah, verses 2 and 3 and verse 18 that I read earlier are referring to the future day of the Lord that we just read about. This future far judgment of God, this this. This, this pouring out of God's wrath at the end of the millennial period, uh, the millennial kingdom. It's the far day of the Lord. But Zephaniah then switches gears here on us. He begins to address the near dear day of the Lord, where God will bring judgment in the near term. And so first, as it relates to the southern kingdom of Judah, chapter 2, Zephaniah 2, verses 1 through 3. Gather yourselves together, yes, gather, O nation, without shame, before the decree takes effect. The day passes like the chaff, before the burning anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth, who have carried out his ordinances. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. He's referring specifically in the moment to the southern kingdom of Judah and the present 
near day of the Lord. So what does he say? It's the same thing that we've seen as we've worked our way through the minor prophets. Repent of your sin. There's always a penalty for sin. Repent of your sin, and if you don't, there's going to be judgment. And again, they were thick-headed. They, they had seen the whole history of the nation of Israel up to this point. They've seen God do what he said he was going to do. And then he uses Zephaniah to say he's going to do it again. Repent of your sin. Take your sin seriously. See it for what it is. Repent of it. And then, second here, God's judgment will rain down on neighboring nations. So in chapter 2, verses 4 through 15, he specifically mentions Philistia in verses 4 through 7, Moab and Ammon in verses 8 through 11. He mentions Ethiopia in verse 12, and then Assyria in verses 13 through 15. And then Zephaniah mentions the capital of Jerusalem in chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the tyrannical city. He's calling Jerusalem the tyrannical city. She heeded heeded no voice. She accepted no instruction. She did not trust in the Lord. She did not draw near to her God. Her princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are wolves at evening. They leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are reckless, treacherous men. Her priests have profaned the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. The Lord is righteous within her. He will do no injustice. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their corner towers are in ruins. I have made their streets desolate with no one passing by. Their cities are laid waste without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will revere me, accept instruction. So her dwelling will not be cut off according to all that I have appointed concerning her, but they were eager to corrupt all their deeds. So he's contrasting between the far day of the Lord and the near day of the Lord. So then in chapter 3 and verse 8, he goes back to this far day of the Lord, this future day of the Lord in verse 8 of chapter 3. Notice here, he says, therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as a witness, indeed my decision is to gather the nations. And that's what he does at the end of the millennial kingdom. He gathers the nations together, all the wicked nations of the world. He gathers them together and he pours out on them his indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. And so from chapter 1, verse 2, all the way to chapter 3 and verse 8, it's all about God's judgment scene. Now second, in chapter 3, verse 9, all the way to verse 20, Zephaniah then switches gears from God's judgment scene to God's blessing secured. First, here, if you're taking notes, as it relates to all the nations in verses 9 through 11, and then second, Judah in particular, verses 12 through 20. And I want to show you both of these. So if you look at verses 9 through 11 here, it refers to God blessing all the nations who repent and follow him. 
Verse 9, for then I will give to the people's purified lips that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. My worshipers, my dispersed ones will bring my offerings. In that day, you will feel no shame because all of your deeds by which you have rebelled against me, for then I will remove from your midst, you proud, exulting ones, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountains." And then Zephaniah shares of the remnant of Judah, God's chosen people who will be the recipients of the blessing of God. So if you notice here in verse 17, the reference to Jesus who will one day yet future come as the victorious warrior and bring all his people to himself, we find in verses 18 through 20, we find six I wills of God. In verse 18, he says, I will gather. In verse 19, he says, I will deal, I will save, I will turn. And then in verse 20, he says, I will bring you in, I will give you. You know, there are some really weird views out there about what God knows. In fact, there's a whole uh, branch of people who call themselves Christians who believe that God doesn't even know the future. This is called open theism or open theology that God is simply a reactor to man. So in other words, man has, has free will to do whatever he wants to do, and God adjusts as he moves along. So in other words, he, he created Adam and Eve in the garden, and he had no idea that Adam was going to sin because Adam had a free will. And so Adam exercises his will. He eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He and his wife Eve, and God says, okay, he must adjust. And so people that believe in open theism or open theology, they believe that God does not even know the future. See if this squares with anything that we've been studying in the minor prophets. Well, we believe that God not only knows the future, he determines the future. And so he has complete sovereignty. But within that sovereignty, he has given man uh, the, 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 the culpability to exercise his, his will that he has given them. But, but God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. He is sovereign over all things. He's in control of all things. He has an eternal decree that will play out in history. I don't know how you can read the minor prophets. I don't know how you can read the book of Revelation and not come to that conclusion that God has got it. Yes, man certainly is culpable for his sin. For the wages of sin is death. There's none righteous, no, not one. Man is responsible to believe in Jesus Christ, but God has an eternal decree. He not only knows all things, he determines all things. And so somehow the free will of man, as free as we want to say that it is, is, is in his sovereignty. But there's this middle ground that many churches have adopted over the years, and it's called God's middle knowledge, his middle knowledge. So it's not that God doesn't know the future, and it's not that God doesn't determine the future, it's in the middle. And so they say that God has middle knowledge. So he he knows the future because he knows what men are going to choose to do. 
And see, this is where we get into a whole theological issue with foreknowledge as it relates to salvation. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. All throughout the Bible, from the, from the first pages of Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation, we, we see God being sovereign in all things, even in the salvation of the souls of men. But there's this whole group of people, whether they know it's called middle knowledge or not, they've embraced this idea that God chose people not sovereignly according to the counsel of his will, not because he's God, but because he saw out into the future that these people would choose him. And he chose them on that basis. Middle knowledge. And so, so many churches that you and I may have grown up in or, or in the surrounding communities, they all would attribute middle knowledge to God, where he's not 100% sovereign, sovereignly carrying out his decree, his eternal plan, somehow, some way, he's dependent upon the free will of man. So you look at all these things. I mean, he says here six times, I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. And by the way, it's fascinating as we look at the book of Revelation, God always wins. He always wins. He's already told, he's already told us how this is all going to play out. So rest assured, everything that he says in his word will come true. And so we ask the question, but, but what about us? What about us? Do we know Christ as our Savior and Lord? I mean, it's scary stuff to be thinking about end time stuff and that, that, that those who do not trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord will be thrown into the lake of fire. That's serious stuff. So we ask the question, do we know Christ as Savior and Lord? And I think there are a lot of folks who, who would love for Jesus to be their Savior hey, nobody wants to go and live for eternity in the lake of fire. So sure, a lot of people would acknowledge certain things and would want Jesus to be their Savior as long as he doesn't require anything of them. In other words, there's no cost. You see, it's the Lord part of the equation where folks turn away from Christ. The word Lord in the New Testament is the Greek word kurios, and it means master, so remember we, we saw that Paul said that sin is no longer master over us? Jesus is now our master. You see, Jesus is both Savior and Lord. You cannot separate the two. This is not a multiple choice question where you get to choose that you want Jesus as Savior, but you don't want him as Lord. He is Savior. He is Lord. Jesus said in, 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 or Paul said in Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. 
And this has been the consistent message of the Bible as it relates to true salvation. If any man wants to be saved from the penalty of his sin, he must trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And this is consistent. When Jesus was on the earth, and people ask him, what must we do to follow after you? He, he told them there's a cost. This isn't adding works to belief. It's that Jesus is both Savior and Lord. You see, when we trust in Christ, we make him Lord of our life, and we desire to live our lives for him. Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 26. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Forever, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, this is the one who will save it. For what good does it do a person if he gains the whole world, but loses or forfeits his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me, And my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. What good is it? What good is it? (laughs) We gain the whole world. Elon Musk just bought Twitter for what, $44 billion? I don't even have $44 in my wallet. He got $44 billion to buy. What good is it? Apart from Jesus Christ and a relationship with Him as our Savior and Lord, what good is it? What good is any of it? What does it profit a man or a woman if he gains the whole world? It's going to burn up. You just gain something that's going to be a fireball eventually. It's all going to burn up. That's why we don't lay up our treasures on the earth, but we lay up our treasures in heaven This is why we get serious about the mastery of the Lord in our lives and we desire to please Him all the days of our life. I guess I wasn't as much of a loss for words as I thought. (laughs) I tell you though, honestly, I went upstairs, I was down at my computer, I I went up and I told Kathy, I've been down there for hours. I went up, I, I got nothing. I got nothing. Then I asked for the Lord's help, and that's what we got. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your love to us, and thank you that, uh, oh, it's a reminder that you have all this stuff already planned out as to how things are going to go down. But Lord, I, I, I want to just pray for those who are sitting here today, who are listening to this, and they're, they're thinking, you know, I, I don't know. I, I really don't know if I'm a Christian. They've never trusted in Jesus Christ, your Son, as their Savior and Lord. So I pray that you would do a work in their lives and in their hearts today. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.